It took me nearly three months to build this mansion of a treehouse for my daughter. It had slides, swings, windows and doors, ladders and steps. It had it all. Shit, I even insulated it and had power outlets, heating and cooling. The monstrous structure was a beautiful mix between a full-fledged apartment and a McDonald's play place. I was incredibly proud of it, but I must say that it fully solidified the truth in her words whenever my wife told me that I sometimes way overdo things. Truth be told, it only made her more right since our daughter was only four years old. By the time I finished building the treehouse, there were only a few nice days left in the fall before snow hits, and my daughter only got those few days to play outside and in my creation. Even though I did install heating in it, my daughter wasn't a big fan of going outside to play in the snow unless we turned it into a big event to go sledding somewhere. That was slightly disappointing to me, but she was only four, so I understood. When the snow melted and the temperature climbed again, she was out there playing in it almost constantly. This made me happy to see how excited she was with what I made for her. For about a week, it was even difficult to get her to come back inside to eat and sleep. There had been a couple of nights I had to go out there and drag her in the house for bath time in bed. It was times like these I was happy I had made the treehouse big enough and sturdy enough for me to venture up there. It was plenty big enough, that was for sure. I'd made the inside 12 feet by 16 feet with an 8-foot ceiling. I secretly had planned that size, so if for some reason my daughter didn't like it, I could just turn it into a cool sort of man cave. A month went by with her out there, spending nearly every waking moment playing either inside or on the swings and slide. Then one day in the middle of the afternoon, my daughter came screaming out of the treehouse and into the house. Daddy, daddy, I don't like it. Whoa, 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 little one, what's, what's wrong? I said as she barreled into my legs, nearly causing my knees to buckle. My treehouse, it's scary. Seriously? It's been your favorite place for months. Why is it all of a sudden scary? I asked with a little more annoyance in my voice than I intended. I saw a scary man in there. He was hurt, she said. What What did you just say? Is there some... Just, just stay here. I commanded as I ran out the door and toward the treehouse. As my hand touched the doorknob at the top of the steps, my heart jumped for a second and the thought of how dumb it was, charging inside with no real plan if there truly was someone in there. Still, I turned the handle and burst into the room of the treehouse. Nothing. Various toys and Barbies on the floor, a kitty couch, and a couple of small beanbag chairs were the only things in the room. I'd like to say that I searched the place, but that was literally it. There wasn't much searching. It was all one big room, so search complete. I saw no man inside hurt or otherwise, save for myself. I walked back out the door and back into the house. As I walked through the back door, I found my daughter in the next room over, sitting patiently, watching the back door with her thumb in her mouth. Who is he? She said to me as soon as she saw me walk through the door. Who is who? I didn't see anyone out there. What did he look like? He's gone? She replied, completely ignoring my question and running past me back outside. What the fuck is happening? I thought to myself as I watched her climb the steps and enter the treehouse from the kitchen window. I mentioned the odd experience to my wife a little later that day. 
She seemed only slightly concerned, and we both chalked it up to her exceptional imagination. That night, as we sat around eating at the table, my wife began to ask our daughter about what had happened. Daddy told me you saw someone in your treehouse today. Did they ever come back? Um, no. What did the man look like? Do you know how he got into your treehouse? He was scary. His mouth looked weird and looked like he had a lot of owies on it. Do you know how he got in the treehouse? I chimed in, wondering if I was going to need to upgrade the security around the house. I don't know. I was just playing on the swings and then I came to play with my toys and he was there. So he was already hiding in the treehouse, my wife asked. No, he was hiding, like, in there, she said, pointing to her head. My wife and I locked eyes at the sound of this and both let out a sigh of relief, assuming that it meant it really had been her imagination. Everything went much more smoothly and calming for the rest of the night. We went another week without any thoughts or mention of this situation. Regardless of the lack of hearing anything more about it, I still felt uncomfortable the day after I decided to move the backyard security camera, pointing it at the treehouse as best I could. Sadly, with how much my daughter played back there, I wouldn't be able to set the motion detector on it without sending alerts every five minutes. In the middle of the second week following the unusual afternoon, my daughter again ran into the house screaming about a man in the treehouse again. This time, I immediately ran out to the treehouse and bursting through the door, I was again met with nothing more than an empty room. Frustrated and annoyed at the situation, I turned and began to leave the treehouse. Just as I passed through the doorway behind me, I heard a crack and a thud as if something had been knocked over or broken. I spun around, looking at the doorway from outside the treehouse. I saw nothing. I thought to walk back in and check a second time. And I really wish I hadn't. As my foot crossed the threshold of the door back into the treehouse, everything changed. The light from the sun coming through the windows vanished. Rusted steel and concrete surrounded me, and everything was bathed in an ominous, deep red glow. An overhead light flickered and popped, giving me only quick random glimpses of the horror that I was now surrounded by. Nearly every surface looked like it had been coated in a thick layer of sticky, half-coagulated blood. Chains hung from the ceiling and ended with the same hooks you would imagine at a slaughterhouse. A rusted steel table sat against the wall with various crude, rusted tools on it. The place sort of looked like an abandoned warehouse or meat locker of some sort. A clang rang out behind me, and I turned around, half expecting to see the doorway out to my backyard. I didn't see the door I was hoping for, but I did see a massive man, nearly seven foot tall and looked to be solid muscle. He was shirtless but covered in scars. With the dim and flickering light, I couldn't tell if he was black or just completely covered head to toe in dried blood. The lips of the Goliath were missing, and his teeth had been ripped out and replaced with rusted nails, screws, and razor blades, crudely inserted at odd angles into its gums, and blood seemed to constantly run from the nightmarish dental work. 
giant scar ran down its face, and large stitches used what looked like thick yarn or twine drenched in blood held both the scar and one of its eyes closed. The large man raised its arms out to its side, and I noticed that huge nails and screws were also sticking out of its skin in random locations. Blood dripped from each place a nail or screw had been protruding from his skin. He lowered his head as his arms became stretched out fully from his shoulders and let out a strained and wheezy attempt at a yell. I guessed that its vocal cords had either been severely damaged or removed. I could see rage rinse in its one good eye as it began to run towards me. Oh shit, what the fuck? I yelled as I turned and ran as fast as I could. The dim and flickering light caused me to slip and stumble over hooks and chains laying on the floor that I had not noticed before. The man let out another wheezy yell as it chased after me. I screamed and ran, stumble and roll, scrambled to my feet, scream and continue running. I hit the wall clumsily when I tried to look back to see how much the creature had gained on me. It was getting closer and closer. I ran and felt along the wall, just trying to find my way in the nearly perfect dark that I'd been surrounded in. The huge behemoth of a man was getting closer and closer. Finally, I found it. A door handle or a crash bar, really. I slammed into it and luckily it burst open and I fell through the doorway. Quickly, I ran to my feet and I stood fully up as I began to run. I realized I was outside. I was once again in my backyard. Holy shit, I exclaimed, looking back at the treehouse. My heart pounding furiously inside my chest and out of breath. My brain had insurmountable trouble in trying to comprehend what had just happened. Was, was it a hallucination? Some sort of waking stress-induced nightmare? I couldn't truly grasp what I had seen or what I had just went through. I walked cautiously back into the house. A constant feel of uneasiness flooded my body. My wife, standing at the back door, saw the look on my face and asked if I'd seen anything in the treehouse. I nervously chuckled at her choice of words, but not knowing how to explain, I just told her I hadn't. My daughter wanted to go back out the next day, and I refused to let her go out there alone. When we got out there, I stepped through the doorway first, telling my daughter to stand back and wait for a second. Nothing happened. I stood just inside the doorway and let my daughter enter while I scanned the room, looking for anything out of the ordinary. She seemed completely unaffected as she walked in and instantly began playing on the floor with her toys. As I saw this, I decided to merely shrug off my previous experience as my own temporary psychosis. I tried my best not to be an overprotective parent, and I don't believe in the paranormal, but I can't get the images of that afternoon out of my head. It makes me wonder if there's any truth to it, or if there's truly something wrong. A few days later, I was standing in the kitchen loading the dishwasher, and I heard a scream radiate from the backyard. Worried and confused, I looked over to confirm that yes, my daughter was still in the room playing. Nervous, I opened the back door and began to walk toward the treehouse. From the ground, I called out, not wanting to enter the structure. Hey, is someone in there? 
I stuttered with anxiety. No reply. Hello? Is there anyone in there? The only response was another scream. This one much less woman in pain and more guttural demonic beast. What the f- I mumbled under my breath, but it was interrupted by another scream. This one back to sounding more like a woman in pain. Upset at the idea, I realized I was going to have to go in there to get my answers. My body trembled as I forced myself up the steps, my brain screaming at me in reluctance to enter. I held my breath and closed my eyes as my hand grasped and turned the handle to the door. I opened the door and after a few seconds exhaled and opened my eyes. There was nothing. It was just as my daughter left it a few days ago. Holy shit, I'm completely losing my mind, I said to myself as I stood there looking through the door into the essentially empty room. I really need to get my shit together. This is getting embarrassing. I turned to walk back into the house and the corner of my eye caught something inside the room. I looked back and recognized a small stuffed pink squid laying on the floor next to the couch. Damn it, child, I told you not to bring your stuffed animals out here. I said to myself under my breath as I began to walk up and grab it. Again, as I stepped into the doorway, the light faded. The red glow and flickering light returned and the screams bellowed around me. Excruciating, horrific screams of pain filled the air. I was back in that hellish warehouse once again. My first thought was to run for the door again, but looking in that direction, it was gone. The place that held my escape was now nothing but a flat, blood-covered concrete wall. Anxiety and fear rose in my throat as another scream flooded the room and I looked around to find its source. On a table in the middle of the room lay a woman. A giant of a man was on top of her, straddling her. Her chest and ribs had been cut and ripped from her body, exposing her organs. A huge rusted knife was stabbed into the side of her neck, and I had no idea how it was possible she was still alive, let alone still screaming. The man was taking handfuls of her intestines and pulling them from her body. He was wrapping her organs around himself and stroking himself with them. He looked toward the sky, and with his mouth gaping, that loud, guttural yell vibrated the room. After a few strokes, he would then throw the chunk of intestine or other organ across the room. It would splat as it hit the wall or floor, and he would grab another handful and rip it from her open chest. Completely frozen in shock at the horrific sight, I watched as the woman's head turned toward me and screamed again. You could already see the vacant look of death in her eyes. Just as she looked toward me, a chunk of stomach came flying at me and splattered against the ground near my feet. He grabbed her heart and ripped it from her chest, lifting her entire torso off the table before the artery snapped and her lifeless body slammed back down. He yelled out again as he brought himself to orgasm and shot a black tar into the open blood-filled cavity that had been the woman's chest. I nearly passed out from the pure shock and disgust, but instead I snapped out of my trance and began to run not sure where to go. I just knew I had to get out of there. Again, tripping and stumbling over various things on the ground, I found the wall on the opposite side of the room, far from the light. 
I began to feel around in total darkness for a door. I heard a yell and turned back. In the dim light, I saw the Goliath of a man bite into the woman's flesh with rusted screws and nails for teeth, then flip the table over. He yelled out again, and just as he looked like he was starting to look for me, I found a door. I pressed and slammed against the door, but it wouldn't open. The failed medical experiment of a man heard my attempt and began toward me. I began to panic, slamming harder and harder into the door, still to no avail. She just wouldn't budge. He continued running at me, getting closer and closer. I took steps away and then threw my body into the door, and still barely any movement. He got to me and tackled me into the door. As we both slammed into it, the impact broke the door free. As we fell through the doorway, he disintegrated and disappeared while I fell backward down the steps, landing on my back in the grass in my backyard. My body filled with pain. I slowly got up, staring at the open door in utter disbelief. I stood staring for what felt like an eternity before my wife came out and asked me what was wrong. I did my best to explain the horrific images as best I could, and once I was done, she ran back to the house yelling something about having a plan. My wife is the much more superstitious one of us two, and so she decided to call a friend that would know what to do. I had no idea what truly was going on, so reluctantly I agreed to have this crystal-wielding hippie witch-doer show up at our house. A few days later, she showed up, and... I showed up because after pulling into our driveway, she refused to get out of the car and just called my wife from the driveway. My wife put her phone on speaker so I could hear the conversation. Something is very wrong here, she said. I feel a presence stronger than I've ever felt before. Can you burn sage or something to get rid of it? My wife said. No, absolutely not. I'm not leaving my car. I need to go, and you should get a hold of someone else to clear that evil spirit from your property, she replied. Can you come into the house and talk to us? It seems to be only in the treehouse in the back, I said, trying to get as much time for answers as I could. No, it's not. I'm sorry. That's all she said before the call ended, and we watched her drive off away from our house. What was that supposed to mean? What do we do now? I asked my wife. I don't know. I was the only person I could think of. Well, at least there'll be no more playing in the treehouse, okay? I responded. Yeah, I'll look online for someone else to help, she said as she walked off toward the office. Sure, I'm going to go block the door to the treehouse so she can't just wander up there, I said, walking toward the back door and motioning to upstairs where our daughter slept. Avoiding it altogether seemed to work well enough. I was disappointed at not being able to use what I had put so much work into, but it had been a month since we had any problems with it, so... Oh well. During that month, my wife had messaged and called numerous people she found on the internet, trying to get at least an explanation for what was happening in our backyard. All her effort hardly got any results. Most of the people never even responded. Some refused to help or even investigate. And the ones she got to come out to the house did the same as the first lady. They either refused to come inside or just drove past without stopping at all. Finally, I'd had it with all this and told myself it was all bullshit and there was nothing actually wrong. I went to the treehouse and unblocked the door and 
a deep breath and walked inside. Nothing. It was perfectly fine. A few spiders had made some impressive webs, but besides that, it was all fine. (laughs) See, I fucking knew it, I yelled out. Just to prove to myself, I even walked over to the doorway and jumped back and forth across the threshold a few times with no effect. Hell yeah, I knew I was right. It was all in my head, I thought to myself as I walked back inside. It's fine. I told you it would be okay, I told my wife as I walked in. I then told her what I'd just done out there, and she did nothing but give me a concerned look. I really don't think that was a very good idea. What if you just pissed off whatever it was? She said. Whatever, there's nothing out there. It was all in my head. I'll prove it. I replied overconfidently as I began to walk outside. When I got back out to the treehouse and up the steps to the door, I looked back at my wife standing, staring at me from the back porch. See? Nothing, I said just before walking through the door. As I stepped through, everything changed again. The darkness was back, and that haunting red glow that seemed to be coming from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The chains with hooks draped down from the ceiling held decayed and naked bodies this time. A few of them swung back and forth as if someone had just run into them as they walked past. Every one of them had its chest torn open with their organs either missing or spilled out onto the floor. From the far side of the warehouse room, I heard a scream followed by the groans and yell of the massive demon of a man. Oh, fuck, I whispered to myself, realizing I'd seriously messed up. The smell of rot and decay was overwhelming, and I nearly threw up as I pushed past the bodies, making my way hopefully toward a wall and some sort of doorway out here. Each time I pushed against one of the hanging bodies, something would fall from them. Various body parts and organs fell out or broke off, hitting the floor with thuds and splats. The sound made me flinch every time. I made my way slowly through all the bodies for what seemed like an eternity before I came to an opening. I had been traveling in the wrong direction, and it led me right to the beast. I could see it between two of the swinging corpses, different this time. It looked as though it had grown at least a foot taller bigger in every aspect, including all the rusted nails and screws, seemed to have changed to the size of long, sharp railroad spikes. Its muscles, now completely oversized, bulged and dripped with blood from both the various impaled spikes in his skin and from the splatter of his victims. His jaw had become more pronounced, and the rusted screws and razor blades he had in place of teeth were much bigger. He also now had large, rusted, metal-bloodied horns that looked like twisted rebar jetting from the top of his head. I caught the horrified look from the man laying naked on the table just before the beast grabbed his skin at the top of his chest and ripped it down and away from his body like tearing off a shirt. The beast looked toward the sky and dangled the skin over his face, letting the blood drip all over him before dropping the skin into his mouth and swallowing it whole. The man on the table began to scream in pain, but his cries were cut short as the beast leaned down and bit into the man's throat. Somehow, still alive and alert, all the man could do was sputter blood from the gasping wound where his throat used to be. My heart felt like it was going to burst through my chest. It was beating so hard and fast. I couldn't have held my eyes open any wider in terror. 
All I wanted to do was look away and run, but the horror of what I was seeing rooted me to the spot, and I felt paralyzed. The beast roared in the man's face and began to bellow a deep and haunting sound I can only describe as some sort of demonic laugh. It got louder as it again looked toward the sky and after a few seconds it suddenly snapped its head back down and ripped both of the arms from the man's body at once, sending arcs of blood flying through the air. It threw one arm off into the darkness and took a huge bite out of the other before also throwing it away. The man, now having no way to make noise, just sputtered more blood from his throat in response to the pain. I watched in shock, knowing I really needed to get the fuck out of there, as the beast leaned in and seemed to study the man's face. The beast's thick black saliva dripping onto him as he held his gaze mere inches apart. Another roar exploded from the creature's mouth as my shock suddenly broke. I began to move as quickly and quietly as I could through the bodies on the opposite direction, desperately looking for a wall or door. The sound of ripping came from behind me, and shortly after I was hit in the back by part of a leg with a huge bite taken out of it. There wasn't much of the man left on the table, and I knew that it meant I was very quickly running out of time before he would be looking for someone else that he could put on that table next. Now, covered in blood and viscera from pushing through all the corpses, I finally made it to a wall. Sadly, I found no door and began to run down the wall. My fingers slid along, hoping to feel a door. In my panic, I ran straight into another wall as I came to the corner of the room. As I hit the wall with a loud thud and fell back, another roar emitted from the sitter of the room. I stood back up and... Placing my hand on the new wall began to run down it, my footsteps making so much noise now as I panicked, running along the wall. I heard chains begin to swing and I knew the beast was on the move. Shit, 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 I mumbled to myself as I ran. I smashed face first into another wall, another corner, and still no door. Standing back up again, I turned and made my way down the third wall. My face and body hurt so badly from slamming into walls without even slowing down. As I ached, I ran my fingers still sliding across the wall. I felt the wall shake and a roar erupted through the air. The beast must have just slammed into the same wall I was running along. Not thinking it was even possible, my panic rose even higher. And then I felt it. A door frame. I stopped suddenly and felt all around it. It was another crash bar handle and I stepped back and kicked it with all the might at the bar. My heart racing as I began to just barely make it out of the red glow, bodies on chains swinging as something was tossing them aside as it came directly for me. I kicked at the crash bar a third time and the door flew open as if someone had opened it from the other side before my foot made contact. The force of my foot caused me to fall forward through the suddenly opened doorway and I came tumbling down the treehouse landing on the grass. My wife let out a scream as I came out flying through the doorway and ran to me as I hit the ground at the bottom of the steps. What the fuck happened? Why are you covered in blood? Are you okay? Should I, should I call an ambulance? I looked down at my body and she was right. I was still covered in all the blood and guts I'd picked up, pushing through all the hanging bodies. Fuck this, I exclaimed as my wife helped me to my feet and I hobbled off to the garage. My wife stood at the bottom of the steps, staring up at the door to the treehouse as I came back from the garage carrying a gas can. I told my wife to move out of the way and grab a lighter as I started pouring gasoline all over the treehouse as best I could without stepping inside again.
I poured half of the can everywhere I could reach and threw the other half, can and all, through the doorway and into the treehouse, still not really knowing what was going on. My wife stood on the grass holding a box of matches, and as I returned to her side, I took them out of her hand. I struck one match and dropped it back into the box. The rest of the matches lit up as I threw it upon the steps next to the door. We stood next to each other and watched as the treehouse quickly turned into a raging fireball. It was nearly just a pile of ash and scorched earth before the fire department was called and showed up. When they did arrive, I held them back, making sure there would be nothing left of the treehouse. That was nearly a year ago. Grass has grown back over the charred spot in the yard where the treehouse once stood. The fire marshal had lots of questions about what happened, but I just told him I must have put in some bad wiring that caused the fire. I don't think anyone would have believed me if I told them really what happened and why I did it. It's been peaceful around the house since that all went down, but my daughter came running up to me a few minutes ago. She was yelling about a scary man in her toy room. I'll buy her new toys, but I'm going to call the moving company. We are leaving. Last week, I was driving back home from my grandmother's birthday party. My family all lives close to each other, but five hours away from me, so my plan had been to spend the night and leave the next day around lunch. But then I got into a big fight with my brother, the worst we've ever had. My parents took his side like they always do, and I decided I needed to go ahead and go. It was at about 10 at night when I left their house, and by midnight I was starting to regret my decision. It was so far to drive that late, and I was already really tired. I have considered stopping at a motel, but the route I always took consisted of tiny towns connected by long stretches of wooded roads, and I didn't think there was a single place to stay along that entire journey. I was on the longest, darkest part of the drive, a stretch of nearly a hundred miles without any real signs of people other than the occasional farmhouse or closed country store. I began towing with the idea of just parking and taking a nap as my fatigue worsened, and when I woke up, starting to veer, I knew it was a necessity. I decided I would stop to sleep, but only when I reached the next semi-populated spot on the road. I knew the tricks to stay awake. Rolled down the window, I tried to sing along to the radio, I rolled the window back up and cranked up the air. I even slapped myself hard enough to make my face tingle. Thing is, these are all half measures. They're sandbags against the rising tide of sleep, meant to delay the inevitable for a few minutes. Getting out of the car, caffeine, actual sleep, these were the only things I knew that could really roll things back once you were truly on the edge of falling asleep on the road. I had no caffeinated drinks with me, and I had no real idea of how many more miles it would be before I saw streetlights again. But rightly or wrongly, if I was going to sleep in my car, I wanted at least the suggestion of civilization and order surrounding me. So that left getting out of the car and walking around. I didn't love the idea of stopping on some dark, lonely country road, but it seemed a better option than wrecking when I finally fell asleep for a second too long. Part of the road I was on was winding, with thick strands of ancient-looking trees looming over the road on both sides. It was nearly a full moon, 
but the shadows of reaching branches covered the road in an endless silvery tiger stripe of alternating light and dark. I drove on looking for a straighter, brighter patch of road, but none came, and with each mile, I felt myself drifting deeper and deeper. Muttering under my breath, I pulled the car over on a semi-straight section of road that was maybe a hundred feet long before it snaked into new directions. I hit my emergency lights, hoping to keep any late-night drunk drivers from plowing into me or my car and got out. The air was colder than expected, even for October. Colder than it had seemed when I'd rolled the window down earlier while driving. It was weird, but I was also half asleep and didn't necessarily trust my logic at the moment. I moved in front of my car and began walking in a circle within the glow of my headlights before transitioning into jumping jacks. I knew I looked stupid, but at a glance at my surroundings, it made it clear that there was no one around. Aside from my car's light, the only source of illumination was from the intermittent glow of the moonlight from above the rustling trees. The only sounds, aside from those shivering leaves, was the low purr of my car's engine and my own puffing breaths as I went through my midnight calisthenics routine. But then I heard something else. I stopped at the noise and listened, but there was nothing. After a few seconds, I decided it was my imagination and was about to head back to the car when I heard it again. It was whistling. Not the cry of some bird, but the high, clear notes of some unfamiliar tune. My skin began to prickle as a low buzz of fear joined the music in my ears. It went on for at least... Ten seconds this time before stopping. And it was enough to tell me it wasn't a recording or some scrap from a distant radio carried to me from a tide of nighttime air. No. Someone or something was whistling a song in the dark, and they were close. Trying to keep myself from breaking into a panicked run, I went back to my car and pulled the handle. The door was locked. I had locked it as a precaution when I got out because I had the image of someone sneaking into the back seat while I was outside with my back turned. The irony wasn't lost on me now, but my main focus was getting out my key and unlocking the door. I fumbled desperately in my pocket as the whistling started up again for a few moments, much closer this time. It seemed like a different part of the same song, though I couldn't say for sure. I yanked the keys from my pocket and started jabbing it shakily at the lock when I heard my car's engine shudder to a stop. A small whine of terror escaped me as I tried to find the lock, this time successfully. Turning the key, I froze as the whistling began a third time, now directly behind me. I could smell something now, a mixture of several strong smells like something was mixing cinnamon, garlic, and rotten eggs in a hot skillet. I gagged slightly and was readying myself to try and yank the door open when the whistling stopped again. The smell grew stronger, and then I felt a small burning kiss on the back of my neck. The next few seconds were a panicked blur. I yanked open the door and got in, slamming it shut without daring to look to see what might be looking in at me. Locking the doors with one hand, I cranked to the car with the other. I almost cried with relief as it came back immediately. I thought I heard a light scratching at my window as I threw the car to drive and sped off into the night. I had no trouble with drowsiness the rest of my drive home, and it wasn't until the next evening that I finally fell into an exhausted sleep. 
I don't have any explanation for what happened out on the road, and as the days have passed, I found myself rationalizing it more and more as some kind of waking dream or false memory brought on to me by brief moments of sleep as I drove home that night. But then last night, I woke up to a terrible smell in my room. It smelled of garlic and cinnamon and sulfur. I sat up in my bed, my eyes wide and my heart hammering as I stared into the dark. Then I heard it. The whistling. And it was coming from underneath my bed. I bolted from the room in my house, running next door in my underwear and hammering onto the neighbor's door until they warily agreed to call the police. When the officers came, they found nothing. No signs of a break-in or anything stolen. No trace of any intruder was ever there. And for the most part, they were right. When I returned home in the early hours of the morning, I did my own search for signs that some person had been there, and at first I saw nothing out of the ordinary. But then I looked more closely under the bed. There was a minuscule amount of dirt there, strange greenish-gray dirt unlike any I'd ever seen. And mixed with the dirt is what looked like small patches of dried skin, as though something was... molting. I don't know what to do if I'll ever have another chance to write this down, so I'm taking the time now, mainly so my account is known if something happens to me. I don't know what this thing is, but I feel sure it will find me again soon. The thought of that terrifies me, but it's not the worst part. See, the more I think about it, the more certain I am that every time it whistles, it's a different part of the same song. Almost as though it wants or needs me to hear the entire thing. Since I realized that, a single question has been haunting me. It casts its shadow over everything else, like the twisted, reaching branches of an ancient tree darkening some lonesome midnight road. What will it do when it finishes the song? Millie was a carefree girl. She'd run, play, and laugh so much more than the other kids. While the boundless energy of even the most energetic kids ran on fumes, she would still be bouncing off the walls, begging to play more. Millie always loved to be the center of everyone's attention and would throw a fit when someone didn't want to play with her. Silly Millie, her mother used to say. Not everyone can keep up with someone quite like you. Rest, my child. They'll be ready to play in the morning. Her mother gave her the same speech every night before she'd tuck her into bed, but one night, that changed. On one cold December night, Millie never came home. Her mother was woken up to the terrible news that Millie had drowned in the local lake. The police were never sure if it was due to foul play or if it happened completely by accident, but regardless, Millie's mother broke down psychologically. Her husband had passed before his Millie's birth, and now the last remaining pillar of light in her life was taken away. She never left the house, barely ate, and rarely slept. Eventually, she was moved to a psychiatric hospital where she was taken care of until her death a decade later due to poor health. She often kept to herself, not even attempting to communicate with anyone else at the hospital. But even so... The staff often reported her being awfully chatty. 
She was often seen holding conversations with herself, and on more than one occasion she could be heard saying her most popular phrase, Silly Millie, before drifting off to sleep. Her death had become somewhat of a local legend. Seeing as she only lived a few towns over, stories about seeing a little girl late at night around there or hearing disembodied laughter always seemed to make their way over. But it wasn't until the bored kids of my sleepy town decided to start challenging each other to go to that leak alone, only to be scared shitless by their friends lying in wait, did I start to take a real interest. I did some research with the help of the local library, and talking to some older residents, did I manage to get the full picture. Yes, Millie was a real person, and her mother really died in a psychiatric hospital. That much is true. But there was one big thing everyone was missing. Millie's death was never thoroughly investigated. In fact, even though privately the police conveyed that it was definitely possible she was killed, in public they chalked it up to accidental drowning and never went back. In fact, all the people who were either alive at the time or knew someone that was absolutely refused to go to the lake. They talk about what happened, sure, but it was almost a rule among older folks that the lake was forbidden. For them, Silly Millie wasn't some unfortunate event. It was something that permeated their lives to this very day. Of course, I had questions about this and not getting satisfactory answers from anyone. I decided to make the half-hour drive to the lake myself. Once there, I took a quick hike around the large body of water, sat around, and waiting until it got dark, playing on my phone and reading, I saw absolutely nothing. Fearing I just wasted a perfectly good day, I walked up to the surface of the water, right at the spot where I was told Millie had fallen in, and I stared now at the black surface. Still, nothing. I sighed in disappointment, and I was able to turn around and leave. I felt someone push me in. Normally, I was a very strong swimmer, but between the freezing temperatures and the shock of what had happened, it took me a moment to regain my bearings, but even then, something was off. It felt like something was dragging me toward the bottom and pushing my head down under the surface. I was fighting with all my might for my life against some invisible force. But my mouth was filled with disgusting black water. I screamed for help as I flailed around desperate for someone to come and save me. To my surprise, a group of local kids heard me panicking and quickly rushed over to help. They managed to grab a long, sturdy branch and pulled me close enough to where they could drag me in by hand. Through gasps of air, I thanked them for their help and offered them food and drive them home for saving my life, but they all just gave me an awkward smile and said that they were fine. Fair enough, I suppose. I'd be freaked out by a random guy screaming for help in a lake at night, too. I made it home safe afterward put my clothes in the wash, threw my now waterlogged phone into a bowl of rice, showered and then went straight to bed, feeling like my curiosity of Millie's life and death wasn't worth the trouble. However, my imagination seemed to have other ideas. That night, I had horrible nightmares about the lake. I saw so many people drowning, I could hear the blood-curdling cries for help, and there was nothing I could do about it. 
I couldn't reach out and call for help because I was standing at the bottom of the lake unable to move. I looked to my left and I saw a girl watching the scene as I was. She then turned her head toward me and gave me a warm smile. I like watching them drown, she said. It means I get a new person to play with. She paused and her warm smile disappeared, turning into a look of frustration. I really wanted to play with you, but you didn't want to play with me. Do you not like me? I didn't know what to say. I had no idea who this girl was or what she was talking about. As I was about to speak, I remember being shot up through the top of the lake like I was jolted awake. At the time, I thought it was just a nightmare. My brain, trying to make sense of what happened, was all that I could take it for. But things got so much worse from there. I had nightmares about her every single night, and the nightmares only became more and more vivid to the point where I couldn't tell if I was dreaming or awake. And with the sleeplessness came the hallucinations. I'd hear her laughter while walking down an empty street. I'd see her in the backseat of my car while driving. She was everywhere. She'd always say the same thing. Are you ready to play with me? One night, I remember screaming at the vision, completely berating her for intruding on my life, but she just looked at me with a wicked smile and said, You're just tired. Mother always said that some people just can't quite keep up with me and that you'll be ready in the morning. After dealing with this for months, I realized she wasn't going to leave me alone until I conceded. But what did she want me to do? How could I play with a deceased girl? I consulted one of my contacts who grew up around the time the story of Millie's death was at its peak and about what I could do and the answer she gave me was terrifying. Apparently, a young woman who was also searching for answers about Millie's death just a few days after the investigation had begun. She had also been tormented by dreams and visions of the young girl, similarly to me. She had also paid a visit to the lake and had almost drowned when she was saved by a couple passing by, but unlike me, she managed to speak to Millie. And once she found out what she had to do, she confided in townsfolk saying that she had the answer and to never go back to the lake. Her body was found floating there the next day. In that moment, I realized what it was that Millie wanted from me. She wanted me to become a permanent playmate. The way I saw it, it was either the lake or dying from exhaustion, but that couldn't be it. My fate couldn't be tied to that girl. I wasn't going to give up my life to make her happy, so I struck a deal. When she appeared to me in my dreams, I realized there was a third option that could work for both of us. And that brings me to the third reason I'm sharing this story with all of you. If she left me alone, I could give her what she always wanted. The ability to reach out to all of you. Why well, only have one new playmate when she can have hundreds or thousands? Now that you know of her story, I'm sure you'll all be happy to put a smile on her face. She's so excited to meet you. Silly Millie, I told her. Not everyone can keep up with a girl like you. Rest, child. You'll have lots of new friends in the morning.
unexplained phenomenon is a staple in human culture. Strange goings-ons, paranormal in nature, are prominent in our lives in one form or another. You may not think about them all that often, but there's always a piece in the news or a crazy story from a friend or passerby that makes you recall such strangeness. No matter how many times you forget about the subject, there will always be a moment that drags the notion back to the surface of your memory. For several years, I'd forgotten all about the monster living in my mom's pantry. I'd forgotten all about it, that is, until now. I was 10 years old when I first became aware of the monster's presence. It was a normal evening at home. My mother and I awaited my father's arrival and I helped her with her dinner preparations. I look back on these memories fondly. I loved cooking with my mom and I was overjoyed whenever my father came home from work. I had what some would consider a picture-perfect childhood, save for one peculiarity. The thing that resided in the pantry would audibly reveal itself that very night. While cutting up vegetables for my mom's famous barley soup, I heard a scratching at the pantry door. Startled, I jumped, nearly cutting off one of my fingers in the process. My mom looked over at the pantry, then to me with a concerned smile. I looked to her for answers, utterly baffled by the noise. Here it goes again, that scratching at the pantry door. What is it, Mom? I asked. I'm not sure, sweetie, but it's been there ever since we moved in. Sometimes it scratches at the door, other times it will knock the food off the pantry shelves. Some nights it doesn't make a sound at all. There was no comfort derived from her explanation. I was still frightened, and my mother noticed this. It's nothing to be scared of, honey. Is it something bad? I asked. No, of course not. Just then, the scratching recommenced. I jumped a second time. My mother then walked over to the pantry door. Here, look. She opened it up as the scratching continued. Once the door was completely ajar, the sound ceased. See, sweetie, there's nothing to be worried about. Despite my mother's comforting words, my ten-year-old heart couldn't help but race with fear. In the coming years, I continued to help her cook, but I never once set foot back into that pantry, convinced that the thing living there was a monster out to get me. This fear was kept alive by the scratching that would interrupt otherwise happy moments. I ignored it the best I could, but sometimes I'd have to leave the kitchen. Eventually, the sounds stopped altogether. It's now been many years since then, and both my parents have passed away. In their wills, I was left everything, including my childhood home. It took me a while to come to terms with their deaths and move back in, but I eventually accepted the situation and embraced the living space where I grew up. It was the little memories sprinkled throughout the house that helped me cope. Sometimes I would walk into the living room and see my dad sitting in his chair, smoking a cigar, and watching his favorite sitcom. At other points, I would see my mother in the kitchen, making us dinner. These corporeal fragments of a time long since past kept me going. After a while, the house felt like home again. Until one day. I had just arrived home from work when it happened. I sat down on my dad's favorite chair and flipped on the TV to unwind. Something crossed my mind. Minus the tobacco, I had actually become my father. This thought put a smile on my face as I reclined the chair to relax. Relaxation never came, though, 
as an all-too-familiar scratching sound emanated from the nearby pantry. My smile quickly vanished. I jumped up and ran to the kitchen to investigate. The scratching continued and increased in volume. I stared at the door, hoping an answer would jump out at me, but also hoping whatever was inside wouldn't do the same. Without many options at my disposal, I was forced to open it. Much to my anticipation, the noise ceased, and I found nothing behind the door but some empty shelves and an old broom. This was the same thing that happened when my mother opened the door many years ago. I was no longer a frightened child, but the sound's return was still unnerving. At least it was at first. After a while, it became nothing more than a bothersome fixture in my otherwise normal days. Whenever I came home from work, woke up in the middle of the night, or sat down to watch television, that terrible scratching would invade my ear space, not stopping until I opened the damn pantry door. This routine continued for over a year. One night, however, everything changed. I had just gotten home from a long day of work and flung myself into the comfort of my bedsheets. I wanted more than anything to drift off into a peaceful slumber, hoping the day's troubles would melt away into the form of happy dreams and restful sleep. Unfortunately for me, the moment my head hit the pillow, the scratching started up once more. I groaned in anger, not wanting to leave my bed for anything, much less that damn noise. Because of this, I made the mistake of not getting up right away. I hit my internal snooze button and allowed myself to drift off for a few moments. When I came to, something was amiss. I didn't notice it at first, but the unsettling silence made way for startling revelation. The scratching had stopped. How strange. It never stopped on its own before. Perplexed, I jumped out of bed and ventured downstairs to investigate. What I saw upon entering the kitchen alarmed me. The pantry door was wide open. I can't be. It was definitely closed when I got home earlier. Turning the light on revealed the usual empty shelves. It wasn't until my hand met the wood at the door that I noticed something unusual. Embedded in the hard oak were deep gashes, claw marks that covered the entire bottom half of the door. Those weren't there before. What the hell's going on? My childhood was beginning to catch up with me. Memories of the pantry came bursting through the floodgates, the scratches, the nightmares, the fear. But I wasn't a child this time. And I wasn't going to let a little superstition get the better of me. It was just a raccoon or a large rat, that's all. At least that's what I told myself. I scoured the house for nearly an hour, ignoring my fast-beating heart the whole time. Whatever escaped from the pantry was nowhere to be found. As I stepped back into the kitchen to close the door and call it a night, something stopped me in my tracks. A shadowy figure raced across my field of vision into the pantry. Crack! The pantry door shut on its own, shaking the walls around it. The bone-chilling vibration reverberated throughout the entire house in an instant and was then followed by an eerily dead silence. My heart sank to my bowels. I was officially rattled. 
Running on pure instinct, I grabbed the heaviest things I could find and piled them in front of the door, including my dad's old chair. Once satisfied with my blockade, I raced upstairs, locked my bedroom door, and jumped underneath the sheets. I was a kid again, scared shitless of the monster living in my mom's pantry. After the fear and adrenaline tapered off, I managed to get a little bit of rest. My late night adventure had come to an end. I woke up the next morning in denial, a defense mechanism of a mind bruised by fear. Pretending nothing happened the previous night, I went about my morning routine as normal. After breakfast, I was able to walk right past the pile of crap in front of the pantry without flinching. I even ignored the stretch marks on the front door as I left for work. Everything was fine. There was no monster, no supernatural entity taking over my home. That was absurd. It was just a raccoon, a very large raccoon. The lies only lasted for so long. Driving away, the terror set back in. Sending me into a desperate frenzy of distress and unease, though distracted by my strange predicament, I managed to make it work in one piece. Work brought me no solace. All I could think about was what awaited me at home. I was on edge. My boss noticed this. He asked if I needed to leave early and get some rest, and I practically shouted the word no at him, begging him to let me stay. I wanted to be away from that house as long as I could, though confused by my unorthodox behavior, my boss obliged. I might have been able to stay at work, but I had to clock out eventually. The day went by far too quickly, and before I knew it, I was back home, sitting in my driveway, dreading even the thought of opening the front door. Because of this, I sat in my car for a while, attempting to come up with a plan of action. What do I do now? Who can I tell? Where will I stay? Questions whirled around my tired mind until I shut my eyes and took a deep breath to relax. The weariness caught up in this moment, causing me to drift into a stress-induced coma of sorts. I woke up a few hours later to the terrifying scratch marks on my driver's side window. That was the last straw. That's it, I proclaimed out loud. I wasn't going to let this thing control my life, and I certainly wasn't going to let it drive me out of my own home. This is where I grew up where I spent my childhood with my mother and father. They were still with me, the recollections scattered throughout the house, reminding me of who they were and the impact they'd had on my life. No amount of scratching was going to tear through the memories I had of them. Fed up, I got out of the car, walked up to the house, and swung the front door open. I was greeted with the sound of scratching, but this time it was louder than I'd heard before. As I stormed over to the kitchen, the noise morphed into a thunderous banging at the pantry door, causing the stuff I piled in front of it to move a bit. Whatever was inside really wanted to get out this time. Adrenaline coursed through my veins. My fight-or-flight response was begging me to run, but it was too late. I had already made up my mind. I was going to face this thing head-on and get to the bottom of this mystery. This was my home, after all. It belonged to me and my family, not whatever this thing was. 
In removing the stack of furniture, the banging continued and grew louder. The kitchen cabinets around me swung open. Various pots and pans fell off the shelf. An earthquake of supernatural proportions filled my home, but I didn't allow it to rattle me. I knew what I had to do. After a moment of mental preparation, I opened the pantry door. There, sitting behind the door, was a dog. It sat there and looked up at me in confusion. I did the same thing to it. After giving me a once-over, it walked over to me and nuzzled up against my leg. I instinctively reached down to pet it, as I would any dog, but there wasn't any dog. After a few minutes of getting to know each other, I walked back into the pantry and it vanished before my very eyes. It was... a ghost. My fear completely dissipated after that day. I now come home to the sound of scratching and smile. I no longer open the pantry door in fear, but instead to let my new friend out. He walks around the house just exploring like a normal dog would. He even sits down and watches TV with me from time to time. He's a bit shy though, vanishing whenever I have company over. Still, he is a good dog. Very good dog. I assume he belonged to one of the many owners of the house, seeing as it had been built long before my parents moved in. I guess he just couldn't let the place go. Neither could I. After a few weeks of bonding later, I realized I didn't have anything to call him by. I walked over to the little guy, pat him on the back of his neck. That was his favorite spot. I thought about it for a moment, and then I came up with the perfect name. I'll call you... Monster. Monster.